we have to be very careful about how we use our tools so that we develop uh, culturally sensitive solutions or solutions that really take into account the complexity of human, the complexity and messiness of human behavior. And for that, I think the interdisciplinary angle is really critical. Hey, and welcome back to the What The Tech podcast. My name is Christopher, and in this episode, Kelsey and I talk to Helen, who is a researcher and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. Her focuses are social computing and inclusive design, and we had a great conversation talking to her about her past research on cross-culture workplaces and her future research in creating meaningful communities online. All right, let's see what the tech is going on. Thank you, Helen, for coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come on. My pleasure. Happy to be here. I just want to start off by, you know, talking a little bit about your background in computer science. I know you uh, did a Bachelor of Science and a Master's of Computer Science at U of C. uh, And then you did your PhD in Informatics, Human-Computer Interaction at University of Zurich. So, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that came to be. Yeah, I guess when I was little, I really loved art and music, actually. Um, But when I was choosing what to do in university... Uh, because I came from uh, first-generation immigrant parents, they really wanted me to do something practical. Um, So I had taken computer science in high school. I enjoyed it. Um, I wouldn't say at the time it was my passion, but it was something I could do, and I couldn't really see myself doing an art degree. So I picked computer science um, in university. I would say it was in my last year, I took a art and science interdisciplinary class with Sheila Carpendale. I don't know if you know her. Um, she's a professor now, she's at SFU. Um, and I really had this amazing opportunity to sit at the interactions lab. And I got to know what the field of human computer interaction is and what that was all about. I was really excited about how it was very interdisciplinary. Um, It was addressing societal challenges. It was people-oriented, using tech to address these people-oriented challenges. So after my bachelor's, I decided to pursue a master's also at the Interactions Lab. After that, I worked at Smart Technologies for a while as a software developer, but I realized that I really missed the creativity of research because you just have so much autonomy and creativity and what you can work on. And at the time, I knew I was really interested in culture, because growing up bicultural, I was born in China, I grew up in Canada, I moved here when I was six. I had seen a lot of cross-cultural differences in the workplace with how my parents interpreted situations and how I interpreted them. And so I really wanted to explore culture in my PhD. And then I had this really great opportunity to go to Switzerland in Zurich to to do that. And yeah, I wanted to live in a culture where they spoke a different language, where they had a different culture. And yeah, after that, I lived in Germany for a while, even though very close to Switzerland, also very different cultures, um, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And then I ended up Uh, I guess then I went to Dalhousie University. That was last year. Um, That was my first year as an assistant prof there. And um, due to family uh, situation, then we came here. And I'm really excited to be here. This is where our family and our home is. And the Interactions Lab, to be part of that again as a professor is a pretty amazing. um, Yeah, very lucky to to have that happen here. So I just want to touch maybe a little bit more on the University of Zurich portion of that story. Um, 
you mentioned that it was an opportunity. How did you, how did you find that opportunity? Um, my co-supervisor during my master's, Elaine Huang, was here in Calgary. She was my co-supervisor. Um, the, my other supervisor was Saul Greenberg. And Elaine had moved to the University of Zurich, and she was obviously one of my references when I was applying for a PhD. And I had applied in the US and in Canada and Scotland. Um, and I got into a lot of places, but I was, as I said, I knew I wanted to explore culture. So I knew I had to not just read about culture on an intellectual level, but actually live in a completely different culture as an adult, learn a different language. Um, so, yeah, when Elaine said, you should also consider our lab, um, I'll offer you a free trip here. <laughs> so I obviously took that. That was a pretty, pretty cool opportunity. So I took a week, uh, maybe two weeks in Zurich. I just lazed around the lake. They have this beautiful lake. You can see the Alps there. Um, and I really liked the feel of the city. Um, everyone was very relaxed. It had a very um, yeah, relaxed atmosphere, very high quality of life, very cool public transportation system. So it was a very, very good choice in the end for me, I think. That's so cool. That's so cool to hear. And um, it's interesting to hear just the amount of, you know, interconnectedness, I guess, sometimes at U of C, I guess, as an undergrad, uh, a lot of us are from Calgary. So that's so cool to hear about international opportunities that uh, you are able to take part in. And Hopefully that students will be able to take part in in the future. Obviously not the same um, specific situation, but some cool opportunities out there. Yeah, I think there's a lot. And I think our world is becoming more and more global. Um, I guess I also had, the, had a really cool opportunity. I went to a conference. I met uh, Naomi Yamashita, who became my advisor. I took an internship in Japan. Uh, just for three months and that was also a very cool experience so I think with research you get this really great opportunity to go to conferences to meet people um, from all over the world and through that you can really develop these yeah, great connections. Yeah for sure that sounds really cool. I know you mentioned uh, learning a new language and it seems like you've done a lot of travel could you maybe talk more about that and maybe some of the biggest cultural differences that you noticed while you were traveling abroad? I think there's, so when we talk about cultural differences, for example, um, the level of emotional expression really differs between cultures. So how much you express negative emotions or positive emotions, especially in the workplace. And I had a Swiss participant um, who I interviewed. He said that when he, he had a French boss and he said, um, he said, my French boss will often say, if we don't get this done today, we'll all die. And he said, I've never heard that from a Swiss or German person. And I find it really stressful when people are so, um, yeah, expressive with their emotions sometimes. Or there was another participant who um, really, she was a very direct communicator and this level of how directly or indirectly we say what we mean or should we read between the lines really differs between cultures, especially Western cultures and Asian cultures. And she would say, I often missed cues at work where people said, I told you this so many times, you know, this is not good enough or this needs some improvement. And she said, when did they tell me? I, I don't remember any of this um, because she was a very direct kind of speaker and the people she was speaking to was more form yeah, from cultures where you are supposed to read in between the lines to know what you mean. 
So lots of differences like that. And yeah, language, I learned German here in Canada before I went to Switzerland, but then they spoke Swiss German, which is a very different dialect in Zurich. So couldn't understand anything <laughs> despite, despite everything I learned. Um, yeah, very interesting. In Japan, I didn't really speak much Japanese before I went. Um, I went to an Aikido class. I was really into martial arts and I wanted to meet people there. And I remember it was the middle of winter. I had this um, scrunched up note in my hand with Google Translate just saying, may I join your class? I have some experience, but I'm new to Aikido. How much does it cost? <laughs> and I just took this paper and showed it to them. And they very kindly allowed me to join their class. And um, yeah, I was there for three months. They ended up inviting me to a um, performance that they had, like me actually participating in the performance. So I think what I learned there is that often it is very important to speak language, but also I think the, the body language and just the energy and the curiosity you have towards people from different cultures often is enough sometimes. Um, yeah. I was going to ask a little bit more about um, your PhD and maybe what your thesis was about, if you could give us some more info. Sure. Yeah, so my thesis, looking at cross-cultural differences in the workplace, I was really interested in globally distributed teams. Um, now with COVID, everyone is distributed, but, but um, some of us are global in different countries, different time zones uh, around the world. And there's a lot of research showing that when we are face-to-face, -face, when we have these really great nonverbal cues, we can interpret each other's intentions and behaviors more accurately. Um, but research also shows that when we're using tools like email or Zoom, we tend to have more harsher attributions of each other's behavior. So if somebody doesn't send us something by the time we expect it, we tend to not be very generous in our attributions of them. Um, so I was interested in how we can augment tools like video conference or email uh, to kind of bring these invisible cultural differences to the surface so we can help um, yeah, globally distributed teams who are very culturally diverse uh, really, I guess, leverage the benefits of diversity rather than be hindered by all the challenges because you can think of diversity as a double-edged sword. So on one hand, um, diverse teams are way better at homogeneous teams or it can be way better at uh, problem solving, creative thinking, they have less groupthink. But on the other hand, there are so many barriers that we have to overcome before we can reach that high level of productivity in a diverse team. And when we're using tools like Zoom or email, it becomes even harder. So my research is really looking at how we can uh, kind of augment these experiences either by tracking, not tracking, but detecting how we use language and how those are related to cultural values or the nonverbal gestures we use and how that might differ across cultures, showing that as a visualized some kind of feedback as a graph somehow um, in real-time communication or after the communication. And we found that just showing that was not quite enough. It just showed people that there were differences, but it didn't show them what the differences meant. So then we um, combined that with having people reflect on that feedback and how they interpret it, and then share that reflection amongst the team. And we found that that was enough actually to just knowing how other people interpret the exact same exchange and relating that to our cultural values, like in terms of language use or, or gestures or smiling um, was really enough for people to 
yeah, develop more empathy for each other to mitigate conflict. Nobody actually had to adapt behavior, um, but just in adapting the interpretations of one another was enough. Um, and I say that because often adapting behavior is really difficult across cultures. Um, in Germany, uh, in Cologne, where I lived for two years, people speak very directly. In Japan, people speak very indirectly. So they might say, it will be challenging if I ask them about a project. But what they mean is, no, that's impossible. We can't do that. But in Germany, they would just say, that's impossible. We can't do that. Um, so I lost my train of thought there. But yeah, showing these, ha ha yeah, making or forcing people through technology or encouraging them to adapt behavior sometimes isn't very realistic because um, telling a Japanese person that they have to speak more directly or telling a German person that they have to speak more indirectly um, might not work and not, it's not very desirable. And also it's not needed because all we really need to do is adapt our interpretations of each other, understand that there are these deep level cultural differences and what we value and show that to people, kind of reflect on that. I think that reflection is really, really key. For sure. So I was doing a little bit of digging on your work before our interview, and I, I saw that you were using some software to, you know, track those movements and really um, compare and contrast native speakers and non-native speakers in the way that they, oh, yeah. they interpreted body language and also um, just like nonverbal cues and verbal cues uh, of native and non-native speakers. So like their pairs, like non-native with native and non-native with non-native and those kind of pairs. Um, I guess my question is, what kind of programming did you have to go in to understand how to work with that data and really come with come out of a conclusion with that? Uh, you mean the technical programming languages or more kind of the research involved or, or both? Both, yeah. Okay, um, so that, first of all, that's really cool that you read that study. Um, I know it's actually really hard to interview people because you have to talk and listen and think of the next question at the same time. So that's really cool. Thank you for the question. Of course. Um, so that study was when I was in Japan, we were working on, the idea was when there's, let's say a Zoom meeting with 10 people and there's two non-native speakers and eight native speakers. Um, have you been in a situation like that before? No, I have not. So usually, yeah, usually, unfortunately, the native speakers dominate the conversation because language is so easy. They don't have to think about it. And so the non-native speakers end up not contributing as much, even if they have great ideas. They're more hesitant to clarify questions because they don't want to look stupid or whatever. Um, so we wanted to see how do native speakers attribute non-native speakers behavior when that happens and vice versa. Attribution, I just mean like, let's say I don't look very much at the camera and I don't smile right now and I'm always looking here. How would you attribute the reason for my behavior? So um, we use the RealSense camera, it's from Intel. It's just a front-facing 3D camera that you mount on the laptop. And we set up a series of experiments um, where it was a group of three, two native speakers, one non-native speaker. And we just had them do a collaborative decision-making task. And we tracked information like how much they looked at the camera using the 3D Intel RealSense camera 
children, how much they smiled, um, the number of words they spoke, the number of verbal acknowledgements, like, uh-huh, yeah, okay. And then we, yeah, did, had them do a series of trials while doing this task. And after showing them the data, we found that non-native speakers perceived native speakers quite accurately. But when there were uh, typically native speakers often had the false attributions of non-native speakers. So for example, when they saw that, oh, their number of words was quite low, I think person X, so non-native speaker, uh, was probably quite unsure about his ideas or maybe they're just not a very creative person. But then when the non-native speaker attributed themselves, they might say, well, you know, English is not my first language. There are native speakers. There was hardly any room for me to cut in. And we found that by showing that data to them, also sharing how each person interpreted that feedback. In the second trial, after they had seen this, native speakers tended to wait a lot more. They offered more space to the non-native speaker, gave them more room to speak. Um, and everyone interpreted the quality of interaction um, as more positive and more productive. So yeah, that was just one, one um, intervention, I guess, to explore how feedback like that and self-reflection um, can support people of diverse language backgrounds. Did that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. Uh, I guess a, a follow-up question onto that would be, because you started with a group of people that you gave really no direction to, I guess, and then, you know, gave them that feedback, and then they were kind of, I guess, influenced in their, you know, behavior in the second trial. How many times did you have to do that with different groups to, you know, see that pattern form and really nail on the head that, yes, this is, you know, the cause of just mm. the human nature? Um, well, I don't remember. I think we had maybe 48 participants in total. So... 16 groups or something like that. More would have been better, obviously, but sometimes there are constraints about how how much we can pay participants, how much funding we have, and then how many participants we're actually able to recruit. So I remember we did have some difficulty trying to recruit native English speakers in Japan. Most people were non-native speakers. I think it, we it was a mixed method study, so there was some quantitative analysis and also qualitative. Often what's interesting is the quantitative data I don't remember about this study. Um, it showed that non-native speaker self-attribution, so we asked them to attribute their own behavior, they could write whatever they wanted, was quite accurate with the, the finding that we found. Sorry, I haven't read this paper for a long time. It's all good. And I'm not used to talking about it anymore. I think we continued recruiting until we kept finding the same pattern. Um, and you can see that quite, um, I think quite obviously from the combination, kind of the triangulation of the quantitative results with the qualitative results. I think with the qualitative from the interviews, we really got to hear that non-native speakers would say, um, yeah, I felt a lot more comfortable in the second trial. I felt that they waited for me a lot more. I felt that I could really contribute and they were more actively asking for my feedback. Um, just the quantitative data was not enough to show that, but having the triangulation really helped. Um, and I think that's a great method for any kind of exploratory research as well. Like if you start with quantitative, you start with a very um, specific set of questions and maybe hypotheses. 
but sometimes when it's exploratory, you also don't know what you're looking for. So if you only have quantitative, you kind of limit yourself to what you could possibly find. So I think that combination of qualitative interviews along with the quantitative data was really, really helpful. So we had data from the camera. I think we had data from the, um, yeah, from the, from the surveys that they took before and after and during. So yeah, triangulation helps a lot. Do you mind just defining for the listeners at home that may not know, what is data triangulation? So to me, it means using very different methods of data collection. So not just uh, a survey with a Likert scale, but also combining that with maybe if it was a video conference, maybe using the camera data that we've captured of nonverbal behaviors as well, maybe combined with... Um, yeah, qualitative interviews. So just different methodologies that are capturing and that are that have a strength in different types of um, data collection is usually really great for um, cross-cultural research, but also just generally for, for research. In this case, because it was cross-cultural research, it's also super important to have people on the team from different cultures because we all have ethnocentric bias, like everyone, including me, I probably have tons, way more than you maybe. <laughs> um, so it's really important to have people on the team from uh, different backgrounds that share different values. And through collaboration, you can really figure out, oh, okay, why are you focusing the study on that? Oh, okay, because of this. Um, very simple things like negotiation. We were trying to set up a negotiation task that participants could do. Um, what is considered a good negotiation really differs between cultures. So um, Japanese cultures, according to research, are more relationship focused. They really focus on establishing rapport and consensus, relationship building. In Western cultures, we typically just focus on the task. Did we get the task done? We can get to know each other later, but first let's do the task. So even things like that, having a diverse perspectives in a cross-cultural multilingual team is really important for this kind of work. Yeah, that's really awesome. Um, just while we're on the topic of research, I guess, um, would you mind sharing with us a little bit maybe of the research you're doing now or anything you may have planned uh, up and coming? Sure. Um, so I think maybe three characteristics of my research are I really am fascinated by people-oriented challenges. Um, the problems I look at are usually very relatable. So you can talk to somebody on the bus and find out what are they struggling with. And that, you know, is uh, a topics that I tend to be attracted to. Also, I guess the topics I look at are very, um, very ambiguous in a way. They seem like they don't have a technological solution, but I often like to come up with creative or I hope creative technological solutions if there are an appropriate fit. Um, so right now I lead the C3 lab. So designing human-centered technologies to bridge cultural barriers, that's the first C. Improve remote collaboration, that's the second C. And build community. Um, so we've already talked about the cross-cultural research quite a lot that's really trying to use these communication collaboration technologies to bring kind of unconscious 
value differences, cultural differences to conscious awareness and sharing that within a diverse team to improve collaboration. Um, I'm also quite interested in what makes us the same. So that was what makes us different. Also what makes us the same in our human species. So looking at how um, interactive technologies maybe could be used in public spaces to prompt these surprising or joyful encounters between strangers, maybe from diverse backgrounds in, in public spaces. So kind of having a joyful, spontaneous encounter and how how we can leverage psychology literature on kind of in-group and out-group prejudices, bias, how we can leverage that literature to really design uh, an experience that can bring people together. So focusing on what makes us all human. I've also been thinking a lot about how we can redesign social media um, to foster meaningful connection. So there, the research is motivated by how well, loneliness and isolation are increasing globally around the world. It has huge consequences for our, our health. It actually leads to um, very comparable risks to early mortality, comparable to obesity, smoking, air pollution, excessive drinking, like loneliness, that's pretty crazy. Um, so one potential direction is that social media can actually mitigate loneliness by fostering meaningful connections. So very high quality connection where um, you feel seen and heard and valued by the people you're speaking to. Um, but right now, social media, especially commercial social media platforms are really designed to maximize user attention, um, to keep you hooked to your devices. Um, I'm sure you've seen movies like The Social Dilemma that kind of show the persuasive techniques that they sometimes used to try to yeah, maximize screen time. So the goal there is not really human, deepening human connection. The goal there is how can we keep you hooked on your devices? So one area I've been thinking about a lot is how do we, what are the design features that we can use uh, foster instead in social media so that we can promote instead of these extreme forms of impression management that we're currently seeing where people are only showing how successful they are, how beautiful they are, how well-liked and popular they are, to what about social media that can help us feel safe in sharing our imperfections, our weaknesses, our struggles, because everyone has them. So things like that, I've been thinking a lot about how to redesign social media to foster meaningful connection. Um, yeah, also, uh, I've been thinking about how to have remote tools or online communities, how to kind of shape culture in a way. When we say we want inclusive cultures or effective cultures, we often think of it as very magical and intangible, but actually culture is um, not really who you are, but what you do. It's a series of things that we can do. So the first one is building psychological safety, sharing vulnerability and building purpose. Um, and how can we design for that in the tools that we have? So not only in face-to-face -face cultures, but in remote tools, like in Reddit, how could we just, how could we design Reddit uh, and have the invisible infrastructure there to shape social dynamics um, so that we build these inclusive cultures? For sure, yeah, I just wanna hop back. Um... So you mentioned one of your, you know, focal points right now of your research and your thoughts um, is building community, building meaningful connections on social media. Um, I know a lot of 
social media company, they, there's so many different social media companies. And the first couple that came to mind um, are Snapchat and Beam, which was a startup by Casey Neistat, um, I think like five years ago now. Um, both of them really focused on capturing, you know, a moment in time and like living in that moment and just sharing it with the world. And then it's kind of gone. Um, and you mentioned that uh, some of these, these connections are really trying to show you what's perfect and what's incredible and, you know, all that stuff. Um, but uh, these platforms seem to start with good intentions to show just, you know, what is a day to day. Where do you think platforms like those two um, kind of went wrong, I guess, because we see that Snapchat has, you know, evolved into something where it's like, oh, you're popular, you're not popular, you know, that loneliness factor still comes back. Um, so yeah, I'm just curious on your thoughts there. I think that's a great question. I don't know if I can answer it right now, um, because I'm just starting this research. Um, and there's a paper under review right now. So maybe I won't say too, too much about it. But um, I think that is a really great question. Um, to me, my intuition is, and this is not based on an experiment I've conducted or anything, it's just the, the very public nature of what we share and kind of this huge number of followers. Uh, it seems to me more, a lot more about quantity over quality right now. Um, so loneliness, the opposite of loneliness. So loneliness is defined as a discrepancy between what you have, the relationships you have and what you actually desire. So it's very subjective. Um, so you can have a lot of friends but still feel lonely or you can have very few friends and feel very connected. But the opposite of loneliness is meaningful connection. So having these high quality interactions rather than quantity. And I think social media designs right now for quantity of connections, um, but they often tend to be more shallow, more superficial. Um, people don't share very vulnerable topics or topics that are very, um, yeah, they, they tend to sh stick with very safe things. Um, and I think there are certain design features that actually promote that. And one of the, I guess the research agenda for this theme is what are the, what are the research or what are the design features that would foster the opposite of what it's currently doing? Um, and some of what it's doing, it's great. I think it's not that meaningful connection cannot occur over social media. I think right now it's just, if it occurs, it's a choice of how people choose to use it rather than a feature of design. And I'm arguing that it should be a feature of design because we can do a lot better um, with our technologies and what we're trying to foster in them. Yeah, for sure. I really agree with that. I think it's great that you're almost researching the opposite of what they're pushing in tech right now. Right now they're pushing for you to get hooked and you're looking at how can we make this more meaningful for people. So that's really cool. Um, just kind of along those lines, you've mentioned how you've incorporated psychology into your work and how you're really interested in the arts. Have you found bringing that into computer science has been difficult? Like, has it been uh, recepted well or um, has this kind of been a natural transition that's uh, you think something that's gonna be a lot more common in computer science going forward? So I think that it's an, in my personal opinion, I think it's where we're moving towards in the future. So having computer science is like 
this um, hub that every field, almost every field uses in some way now. And I think because of that, we have so much power and also so much responsibility as computer scientists to really consider the societal impact of our technologies, hopefully do some good. Um, easier said than done. Often there's great intentions, but, um, and I think at least in, so I'm not looking at, you know, security or um, compilers or cryptography. I'm looking at very, in my work anyway, I'm looking at very human-centered challenges. And because of that, I think psychology is absolutely necessary, kind of leveraging what we already know, the theories, the techniques, the findings from psychology or cultural anthropology or sociology uh, to really apply to the design of technology, to really inform tech design. I think it's impossible to do it well without a deep consideration of that, because ultimately we're trying to affect people-oriented challenges. Um, and I do think, uh, for me, uh, I think it's been received quite well in the community, in the in the human-computer interaction community. Um, for example, when I was a master's student, I was looking at uh, eco-feedback interfaces. So at the time, it was really popular to buy these eco-monitors. So you plug your TV into them or your laptop or your um, your phone, and it would show you how much energy you're using. And I initially started off um, developing something of my own of that sort. But at the same time, I also kept wondering, why would people care? Isn't it only the, isn't it only already the people who are very green, you know, very conscious of energy that are buying these? What about the people who are climate change deniers or people who don't actually care about this? Um, and because I had that question, I looked a lot at the psychology literature on motivation and behavior change. Um, and through that, eventually wrote a paper with my supervisor, so Saul Greenberg and Elaine Huang, um, on this. So kind of leveraging all the psychological techniques and methods uh, on motivation, on behavior change, to think about how we can design for different levels of willingness and readiness to change. Um, I think the first stage is pre-contemplation, so you're not, you're, you absolutely don't think this is a problem. How would you motivate people like that? Versus the next stage is contemplation. So yeah, I know it's a problem, but I don't want to change because it's too much effort and there's an equal balance of pros and cons for me. Uh, and then the next stage is preparation. So yes, I really want to change. I know this is a problem, but how do I actually do it? Um, after that, it's action, so actually implementing that. And the final stage is trying to maintain that behavior change over time. And if you think about it, all the previous tools at that point in time were really developed for the action and preparation stage. So people who are already thinking it's a problem, they want to prepare to act or they've already acted. But very few looked at the other stages. So um, climate change deniers, for example, so yeah, coming back to your question, I think it's a very, it's in my perception, it's really critical to look at um, the psychological theory, the sociology theory, or the findings that they have and really use that in a deep way to guide design. Um, especially for culture, you can imagine if you um, did cross-cultural research without looking at that, you would really just put people into boxes. You would say, 
all Canadians are like this. And so when you interact with the Canadian, you have some artificial intelligence or machine learning applied here that will tell you Canadians love to be asked how the weather is or Canadians love this and you should have when when uh, Canadians smile it always means this um, so I think there's we have to be very careful about how we use our tools so that we develop uh, culturally sensitive solutions or solutions that really take into account the complexity of human the complexity and messiness of human behavior and for that, I think the interdisciplinary angle is really critical. Dang, wow. That, that was an in incredible answers, Helen. Um, it looks like we're kind of out of time here. Um, but thank you so much for coming onto the show. Um, it was such an honor to talk to you. Uh, it was so cool learning more about you. And I'm super excited to see uh, what you will um, bring to the table in the future. Do you have anything that you want to say to our, our, our audience? Uh, I guess if they're undergraduate students to really see what kind of research is being done, because for me, I didn't even know about this entire research field until very late into my undergrad. And I wish I knew, knew about it earlier because um, it opened a whole kind of new perspective for me of what computer science can do. So yeah, I think that would be my piece of advice and to just try new things because you never know what you like and don't like not knowing what, knowing what you don't like is also really important too. Um, I also have one more question. So if maybe there are undergraduate or graduate students who are interested in the work you're doing, um, are they able to reach out to you? Do you have any opportunities available in your lab? Um, I would love if they reached out to me. I have a series of four questions on my website. So just helenihe.com slash research. Um, at the moment, I think I'm full up on students, but I'll probably be looking again in a few months. Um, but I'm always happy to hear from people. And um, yeah, my tip there is to be as specific as possible about your ideas. Um, I think professors receive a lot of very high level ideas and um, it's very rare for students to write very specific um, kind of compelling ideas that they want to pursue. And if you are able to write that, it really captures um, our attention. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Helen. It was a pleasure meeting you and uh, learning more about your work and uh, kind of your role in tech. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, listener. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the What the Tech podcast. Thanks again to Helen for being our guest. Make sure to give us a follow on Instagram at UFC underscore CPSC for the latest computer science news at the Calgary campus and leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. Have a great rest of your day.